This NASCAR season, every member of the Toyota Racing Team is doing their part to take the trophy home. Like 6th grader Melissa Kowalski, who changes true to true X on every true-false quiz she takes. All my teachers are Martin Truex Jr. fans now. Keep up the great work, Melissa. To accomplish greater things this year, everyone plays a part. Be part of the action at toyota.com slash racing. Toyota, let's go places. NASCAR is a registered trademark of National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing, Inc. NASCAR season is here, and everyone on the Toyota racing team is doing their part to perform at the highest level. From driver Ty Gibbs to amateur musician Russell Viper, who's working on the perfect pre-race pump-up track for the team. Start those Camrys up! Yeah! To accomplish greater things this year, everyone plays a part. Be part of the action at toyota.com slash racing. Toyota, let's go places. NASCAR is a registered trademark of National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing, Inc. Hey, I'm Steve Post with Wing Nation, and welcome to the post office. Yeah, we're just hanging out, having conversations here with interesting people in sprint car racing. And today, I hope you enjoy my interesting conversation with the race director for the World of Outlaws, Mike Hess. Back in December, I was at the PRI show. Okay, so to set the stage on this, the World Racing Group had just dropped the bomb. The bomb was the Extreme Outlaw Series, the, the non-wing sprint and midget series. And so the entire area is a beehive. I walked over to my friend's Hefner Racing Products, uh, HRP, one of our partners here, and I was just sitting at the table talking to Jeff and the guys. And Mike Hess, the race director for the World Racing Group, he walks down, we sat and had a visit, and I'm like, man, this is a guy I enjoy talking to. And uh, that's why I wanted to have him here on the post office, and Mike joins us here. Mike, uh, welcome into the post office. Good to see you, and good to have you joining us here. Ah, oh, thanks, Steve. Yeah, it was, we had a good chat at PRI. Yeah, no doubt. Okay, yeah, I want to go to that moment, because you are a traditional midget, non-wing sprint car guy. That had to be just so neat for your organization, the organization you work for, to announce a series in, in, in something you're passionate, even though you're on the wing side. That had to be really neat for you personally. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, I wish I was more involved, but with our 90 races throughout the year, there's no weekends for us to be had to to do anything like that. So, yeah, yeah, it's exciting. Uh, it was pretty pretty quick moving there at PRI, so a lot of information, a lot of stuff got done in a matter of days. No you know, doubt. It, it was crazy. It really was. It it really kind of kind of moved fast. M- Mike, I want to go back a little bit to your midget days, to your to your like your sprint your non wing sprint cars. You ran some wing stuff as well. Where did your passion for racing come from? Where did where did little Mike Hess first fall in love with racing? Uh, Springfield Speedway, Springer, Shaheen Speedway, Springfield, Illinois. Uh, I grew up there until it closed in 1987. Uh, my dad owned a sprint car, ran it there. Oh, not till the end, but he ran it for long enough that I can remember it. And then um, I just started the bug and it, it never went away. No, I didn't no. get a chance to go race until I was 21. But since I've turned 21, that's pretty much all my life's been. Why, why was it till 21? I mean, I understand it was a different time. A lot of guys didn't start till 16. I knew back then where now they're starting at six. Uh, but why was it, why, why 21 for you? Is that just when you could finally make it happen? Yeah, uh, with the family circumstances and uh, how life plays out, uh, we didn't have the means to do it until that time. And I finally, I, I went and got a ride um, and put a car together for a guy. And he said, well, if you put it together, you can drive it. 
and uh, that was Doug Lewis out of Wisconsin. And so I went, put it together, and we went and ran Morris. And I called my parents and said, "Hey, I'm racing tonight. If you want to come watch?" So of course they came, and then that started Dad's bug. And uh, with their business ventures at that time, they were able. We bought a complete operation from Quinn McCabe, uh, car and all, and went racing. Uh, when we first started, it was just me and my dad. And mom went racing. So. <laughs> And then my brother got involved and that's pretty much who helped us. I mean, who, who was with us the whole time was just my family. You said Morris, things. was that Grundy County? Yep. I started on the pavement in the sportsman midget class. Uh, it was my first, I mean, when I did it for somebody else, that was my first race. So yeah, I went there and we had a pretty good outing. I think we ran fifth or sixth, whatever, but first time I ever sat in that car and I'd only raced two other cars at that point in my life. So it started the bug and uh, we ran that car all the next year and ended up doing pretty decent with it. And, and the rest is history. Grundy County, I think about that. I went to a super late model race there um, years and years ago. We were racing, uh, we were doing something in Chicago land and I went over a super late model race. And I forget the super late model racer. He's one of the really good guys in the Midwest. He ran the Lisa's Salon car. I remember a sponsor, and I think his wife might have been a hairdresser or something. Um, I, I couldn't yeah. tell you on them. If it wasn't Joe Shear or Dick Trickle, I probably wouldn't know who yeah. it was. This guy, Mike, I'm telling you, they ran a 50-lap asphalt super late model feature. He started 18th. There was no cautions, and he took the lead on lap number one from 18th spot working the high side, because that's a racy little racetrack. It's a neat, neat spot. And when you said, when you said Morris, I'm like, man, what are the, that was just a neat race. That, that's a racy little joint, that's for sure. Yeah, with the sportsman cars, they had an, a Mickey Thompson eye block pattern hard tire. So I ran it like dirt. I had smoked the tires through the corner, and they didn't quite know what to think about me. And uh, we won a race on the asphalt that year, and we should have won a race on a couple dirt tracks we went to that year, but I was a little overzealous and didn't finish. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that was Morris. I ran a lot of laps there in, in that car and that type of car and before we ever went dirt racing for real, per se. What was the, was it, was it the location, your preference, you, the, the decision to focus more on dirt? What was, uh, what was the thought process there? Well, I'd, I mean, growing up, we, I grew up at, Springfield at Shaheen's and we went to dirt tracks everywhere else around the country, you know, close. And it just, it's just what I wanted to do. I don't know how I got into the midget stuff, but cause I've been around wing sprint cars my whole life. And then the midget opportunities came and that's the way we went. And it's just the path it took. And I, I wouldn't change it now, obviously it had pretty good success and you know, lots of memories to look back on. What would you say if 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 we did a uh, if if we were doing a show on midget racer, Mike Hess, what's the one highlight that we would have to have as part of that show? Oh, uh, the the Hot Hundred win, yeah, was pretty big at Terre Haute. Um, it's kind of an, an unknown. I'd only I hadn't really won a whole lot. I won at Knoxville that year on a half mile. That was my first win in the in the car in a midget per se. In a full midget was at Knoxville on the half mile and that was oh seven years after we'd first started I finally broke through and got that win and then we won I think seven more features that year so when I won Knoxville won Terre Haute uh, went to Belleville set quick time 
you know, ran up front there. It just kind of had a breakout year there in 2002, and that 100 wins definitely a, a star on my list. What are midgets like on a big flat half mile like Terre Haute? <laughs> uh, I told Justin Zock, because uh, he asked me about it, because he covers Knoxville quite a bit, and he said, man, this got to be crazy in a midget around here. I said, it's kind of boring. He just looked at me like I was nuts. And I said, well, it's it's so big and wide that, I mean, you're going down the straightaway. You've got time to get out and have a drink and chat and do whatever you need and get back in and until you get to the next corner. So he, he was taken aback by that answer, but it still holds true. I think as long as you can get yourself to mentally slow down your thought process on a half mile, it's slow motion when you're racing, um, in, in my eyes. You know, I think a, a small bull ring like a Port City or Macon or that, I think that's tougher on you physically and mentally because it's all happening so quick. Uh, you know, you don't have a chance to breathe on a half mile. You got you got time to breathe a little bit as long as you're, you know, aware of your surroundings, you, you can do it. Seven years before your first win in a midget, what are what are some of the things you 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 learned you took from that? That's that's that that that's going to school. That's go, that's getting a that's getting an advanced degree in it. What what did you learn? Were there moments where you were more optimistic? Were there moments where you're like, this is not going to happen? What was that like? I ran so many second, thirds, fourths um, <clears throat> through that period that you know I'd always been told that. You just got to be there and it'll happen. And, uh, you know, you doubt yourself. But after the, I think we ran second and third at Sun Prairie. Oh, I don't know how many times we've run in the top five there. And I'd be close, but I just couldn't finish it. And then I led a race in Nebraska until the last lap and got passed uh, by Keith Roush for the win. And it was, you know, that was pretty early. That was only like year three but I led the whole thing and then he passed me in the last lap and I said, well, I guess it wasn't meant to be, you know, and you know, it just, you learn through the years. I, I got taught, uh, John Callahan built my cars and he was pretty big on taking care of equipment and knowing what you're doing if you're turning a shock knob. So I, I only, I didn't get shock adjusters for three years, stuff like that. I didn't, we didn't put it in the car. I learned how to drive the car, how it was before I ever put a shock adjuster in it. And then I dialed myself out of the car about the fourth night I had him in there. And I learned real quick, just, just to deal with what you got and make, try to make little changes. Yeah. I had a buddy one time that when they put some adjustments in his dirt modified, I coming down the racetrack, you see him in there twisting knobs and everything. And about three weeks I went to his race shop and he was just, he was just taking them right out. He was cutting them right out of the car. It's like, if, if we're good off the truck, we're good off the truck. If we're not off the truck, I'm going to learn how to handle it. So, um, it just is, it's, uh, it, the adjustments are great if you, uh, uh, if you can manage them, but um, but that's interesting that you went so long without it. You 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 had midget. You finally your first win at Knoxville. That I mean, if you're going to win a first time at a first place, even though it's sprint car capital of the world, not a bad spot to get that first win. No, and we weren't even going to go. Uh, we weren't even going to go up there. We'd we'd been running a lot. I mean, we ran 40, 50 races every year. Just me and my brother with our one car and two engines. So we, the engine that was in the car was tired. So I needed to get it out, put the other one in to go to Knoxville. And it was in the trailer, in the crate. And I went in to get it because he's in the garage, our two car garage at my mom, dad's house, get that engine ready to pull out. 
So I'm putting the crate on the dolly and stuff, and I roll it to go down the ramp, and it hits the crack in the door, and I flip that motor down the ramp. Oh, my gosh. And I was, I was mad. I'm like, screw it. I'm not going. We're not going. Billy, we're not going. That's my brother, Bill. So we're not going. And he just quietly picks it up and starts putting it back in, and then I, I've got to help him. And then we go to Knoxville and win it, and it was just like, I guess, you know, I had to thank him. But, uh, yeah, the win there was pretty cool because I'll never forget. I come off turn four for the white, and it looked like Doug Clark was holding a bed sheet out over the racetrack because he uses them big flags. And uh, it was a green to checkered race and uh, beat uh, Kerry Madsen and Don Drow Jr. for the win. And at one point, I was over a straightaway behind them guys in a nonstop race, and I ended up beating them by a straightaway. So we just found a good line and got rolling. And, and uh, when I went to hit the brakes to stop to go to victory lane, I didn't have any. So it was just faith that, they, thank goodness, that race was over at that point in time. Wow. Yeah. You mentioned Doug with his bed sheet flags. He had me come up and uh, do a hot lap session probably seven or eight years ago. Darren Pittman was in the Hefner 27. That was before Darren was on the Outlaw Tour. He was Pennsylvania guy, Darren. So it might have been nine or ten years ago. And Doug told me, and he said, just make sure you don't bring the flag down when a car is going by. You know, well, I'm very conscious of it the first lap. I'm very conscious of it the second lap. We get to the third lap, and I'm ready to, I'm going, I'm winding up the checkered flag or the yellow flag, whatever brings the session, and I'm not paying attention until I start my downward swing. And all of a sudden, I realize what's happening as I see Pittman coming this way. I hit the bottom when that car went by, and I swear to God, Mike, my arm was in the sweets. I mean, those bed sheets, that wing from that, that wind, and took my arm, and I turn around, and he's there with Justin, and they're just laughing their asses off. They're just like, dude, I told you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's that, it's that Doug Clark grin, and he's just laughing his ass off, saying, you dumbass, I can't believe you did that. So... Um, that is neat, but I'll bet you uh, seeing that white flag and checkered flag, that big bed sheet is really cool. So that's awesome, man. That's that's that, that's that's really cool. You 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 then also did some sprint car racing and even some wing sprint car racing. Um, how did how did you transition? How did that all work for you? Well, um, I went non-wing racing. I did my own deal. Um, I I drove for some other people. I drove for Joe Dueling a little bit. Um, I drove a different car in the Mopar Million at, El at Eldora. I ran a car in that that we te we went for a test session. We went to a Lawrenceburg weekly show, and I was leading the feature by a straightaway, and a lap car spun out in front of me, and I knocked the left front off of it, and Dickie Gaines was second, and I swear I could have counted to like six seconds before he passed me after I spun. And so that was tough to take. That was, I think, one of the first or second times in a non-wing car, and then uh, put my own together and uh, went out, won a show at Jacksonville, won a show at uh, Vermilion County there in Danville, um, and just went and played with it a little bit. And then I still run in the midgets, and I was running a midget race at Jacksonville, Illinois, and uh, when Brian Kapinski had the National Midget Driver of the Year going strong, that night, eight of the top 10 were at Jacksonville. And I was one of them, obviously. But I started like 12th or something, and I methodically worked my way to the front, and Brian Clawson was leading. Threw a slider on him, going to go for the win. The right rear went flat, ran second. You know, and I passed him and Jerry and Loya. I mean, there's anybody at that time who was good midget racers were there. So there's a guy that comes down afterwards, 
and he says, Hey, you ever run a wing sprint car? I'm like, no. He goes, you want to? I'm like, yeah. He goes, well, I'm going to buy one. You, you take care of it. You run it. Well, you know, you just take that with a grain of salt. You're like, okay, I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah. He was a friend of buddy of mine that runs a modified there. Well, that guy happened to be Kenny Dobson. So <laughs> he he buys a sprint car and we go we go wing sprint car racing for a while and uh, we ran it out of my trailer and whatnot and that's I I wish I had a win in that I was so close I ran third fourth fifth um, I could never pull off the win in the feature but I had fun doing it learned a lot the wing car really slowed time down when you got back in a midget uh, I ran ran three sixty nationals with his wing car we were terrible. But you're still going so fast. I ran the non-wing car that Sunday after, and it was it seemed like in real slow motion. So I think the wing car helped a lot in that retrospect and just wish I had more time in it to get going where I could have done it. But uh, our business ventures were changing as a family and whatnot. So around that time, I had to get a real job and stuff was happening. And, and Kenny said, hey, they're looking for a tech guy with the outlaws. Are you interested? And I said, well, why not? So... That's how that started in 2013. What is, I mean, and, and you still run the midget of the Chili Bowl, so you're not totally, you know, you're not totally hung up the helmet. Um, but when a, when a racer gets to that stage where you kind of hit the end of the line, um, you get an opportunity to stay in racing, which I know was one of your goals to do, but how, how difficult is that as a, as, as, a, as a guy, especially with some things, you, some business you still wanted to, still wanted to tend to on the, on the racing side? Um, it's tough, but you have to take the opportunity. I think when you get there, I was never good at selling myself. If I was good at selling myself, I'd probably could have still raced for another 10 years, but I, I did uh, everything I raced on was on my own, you know, or people would say here, I, I didn't like asking. So I knew at that point, if I'm not going to ask, I'm not going to do it. I've got to do something to keep myself in the racing world. And when I got that job is like, Oh, you know, I didn't expect that but I did it and I probably wasn't a good tech director. Um, uh, you know, I know a race car in and out, but I'm at, when I came off from racing, going right to doing that, I was still too close to racers, if that makes sense. And I probably didn't, wasn't thorough enough. I was enough to make sure that nobody was doing something blatant, but I didn't delve too deep in the year I did it. So, uh, when I got the call to be the race director, I, I, I fit a lot better in that role as race director than tech director. I can imagine. I, I just, um, it has to be difficult. The, 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 the tech director, because you're, you're, it's gotta be a challenging, you're, you're tech guys. It's gotta be challenging because it's, it's hand to hand combat. That's probably not the right word, but being down there with the guys and knowing the people and everything, you, you could step back. I heard you describe it one time, like when you're making calls as far as starts and stuff, you visualize every car as being just a plain white car and you look at moves and make your call. But that tech director or that, uh, that, that hands-on guy in the pit area, that's a, that's a difficult job for a guy to do. Yeah, I mean, I knew a lot of the guys um, right when I come in and whatnot, so... You know, we'd take some tire samples and pump some motors, but we didn't delve real deep into a lot of stuff in, in the year I did it. And if I kept doing it, I, I would have. I'd have stepped my game up and done it absolutely right. But uh, I knew that that's not where I wanted to be if I was going to stay in the racing world. And I really expected to go back and work for MOA and whatnot, which I did. I, I went and basically was the flagman, blah, 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 for MOA 
the year after I was tech director until I became the race director for the outlaws. So I expected myself to be in that role and then race some around home. I really didn't expect to be, to get the role I have now. Um, so soon, you know, it was my, my first say gig is doing it is in with the top dirt series in America. So, but I did, I got the call. I went to work at Skagit was my first race in September of 15. And I walked into Skagit. I ran the driver's meeting. I went to the tower and ran the race. Uh, I didn't, there was no, no training, no nothing. I just took the old race director's notes, made my own, did my own thing and, and ran it off and been running them off since six years now. My God. I mean, but I would, but I would tend to think with the, with the race director's role, those lessons you learned in midget racing and, and as a racer it probably served you well as you uh, move from Skagit on into a little bit more comfort with the role. There's, there's got to be things that, that, that helped you with that. I think, it, I think anybody that's a race director needs to have sat in a race car at least yeah. once just mm-hmm. to get the feel and know. Um, I think that earns me a little bit of respect. The guys know if I'm watching, I, I can probably tell them what they're doing. They'll say, no, I'm not, and then we'll watch the video, and, and they know, you know, and, and it is. And it, I think it helps a lot, and I think it helps to be humble. Uh, if you make a mistake, you've got to point it out immediately, and the guys that I've made mistakes on know because I contact them and tell them, hey, I was wrong in that call you know, sorry, I'll do better next time. And so as long as you keep doing that, I, I think you just keep plugging along and earning what you can for respect and knowing that hopefully anybody that comes races with us knows that, you know, I'm out there to give them the most fair race that I can, uh, you know, for what we have to do, whether you're platinum or not, or whoever, it, it doesn't, like you said, they're all white cars. And I just want it to be fair for everybody. You work with me, I'll work with you. The race day as the race director. Um, you talked about the you talked about the drivers meeting. You talked about uh, you know getting up into the tower. But I, I can't imagine what all what all is prior to that. I mean, how how much how do you work with the track with the guy prepping the track? How much are you involved with that aspect of it? A little bit. Um, you know, you're tried and true places that you know or have run sprint cars or what a lot. You don't. There's not a lot you have to do. But if you go someplace that doesn't run us a lot. I'll go contact the track prep guy, kind of get a feel for what he's doing and wants to do, and and then either let him go or kind of steer him towards what I think we need or what, you know, because all the drivers are going to give their opinions of what they think it needs. So I get a lot of help uh, that way. So I, I can steer, you know, sometimes steer the right way and make a track a little better for what we need. But uh, other than that, I just try to leave them alone because in the end, if they've done it, seven years that's seven years they've worked that track that i haven't so you know unless they do me wrong and say it's going to do this and it doesn't then i leave them alone but if they say it's going to do this and does and the next time we go back i say hi how you doing and you're going to do your thing and yep and we're, we go on our way so that's a that's race day and then uh just kind of seeing what cars are there seeing the layout of the track if it's new seeing how we're going to push you know deciding all that during the days and then uh, putting up sponsor stuff about our, our race day problems. That's cool, that's cool. One of the things, and, I, and I've, I've talked to uh, Brian Carter, your, your boss man about, I've talked to everybody about this, because 
the the world of outlaw nos energy drink sprint car event is 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 maybe right now set aside maybe maybe motocross in stadiums that you know where you control the timing of it you guys do about the best job possible as far as efficiency go you have a time window you hit that time window a lot of exciting racing some downtime some chance to go down to the beer stand or hang out with your buddies there um how how has that evolved as you've been there? Because this 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 is something right now that's a fine-tuned machine. Were they already in that mode, or is that something you've had to adapt as you've been in this role now for, for six and a half years? I would like to think that I've, I've helped it along, but, I you know, it takes a team to do it. Yeah. And really, we've had the same team the last six years until this year. We've had a couple officials leave. So... I mean, the last six years, we we got it fine-tuned to where everybody knew that what we were doing, and we didn't have to hardly talk, and you could we could run a show off and with no words being spoken to each other, you know. And and I think it takes a team, but I I mean, I'm if I say a driver's meeting's at five thirty, that means I start talking at five thirty, and if I'm late, I don't like being late, so I start talking at five thirty. And if hot laps are at six, I know sometimes you have to deal with track prep, but if if you tell me tracks and be ready at six, I'm going to have cars ready to go at six. You know, you can't, you can't dilly around. And, you know, I push the teams a little bit sometimes if we're in rain or whatnot, but you know, if we're running a, our, our LCS to our feature back to back, my standard now is I set a four minute timer when the last car they've transferred hits their trailer. When that four minute timer goes off, we sound the eight minute horn and then we're going feature racing. Um, that's kind of what I've become standard for me. If it's if rain's there, uh, then there ain't no four minutes. It's going to be when you get back to your trailer, we're going. Yeah. So I think the teams have come to accustomed to that, and I, I think they enjoy getting out a little bit earlier. Um, it's always a fight to try to get them to stay. You know, seeing cars in the pit area when I was young was the reason why I'm here doing what I do now. So I try to get that across to them. Hey, I'm getting you done early. You've got to stay a little bit so these fans and these kids can see you and sit in these cars because that's going to pay our salaries for a while. So that's I think that's the goal of trying to get done early for me is, man, when I was a kid, I wanted to go. I'd, I'd sleep through the features at Shaheen's, and then I would run the pit area until it was time to go home. So I, I just like getting done early and trying to run an efficient show. And when you show up, you know, you know, if driver's meeting is at 5.30, oh, well, that means engine heat's at 6, hot laps are at 6.30, you know, and opening ceremonies are probably at 7.30. Uh, it's a two-hour window from driver's meeting to opening most anywhere we go, uh, unless we have an extra support class and I got to give a little more time if they hot lap or whatnot. But it's two hours for that, and then it's two hours to three hours for the race program in a night. Yeah. I've got to tell you, it, it, because my, my passion for it came from the same as yours did. I mean, I'd go to Penn Can or Five Mile Point Speedway, and I mean, while I enjoyed the racing, it was like when that checkered flag was in the air, it was a beeline to the pits. And I mean, I had 17 little autograph books, and I'd go to, go to the photo stand and get six photos and have the drivers sign them. And I just, I, I, I'll tell you, and, and I know you guys fight this battle, and I know it's something that's, that I, I'm sure it's fought behind the scenes and occasionally it gets out into the public. I think back about two or three or four or five years ago now, Lakeside, of course, in Lakeside, you can't get out of Lakeside. So that one, that one were hostages, okay? I understand that. I stood there having a beer with Jason Sides, which is not the first time, nor will it be the last time that I have a beer after the race with Jason Sides. And because of that situation there with everyone, I saw 
I saw a line of kids getting Donnie's autograph, and then they're running down and getting Brad's autograph, and they're running over and they're grabbing Drydeen postcards from Logan and everything like that. And man, I'm telling you what, that uh, same thing with me. That was when I was a little kid. I, I I wish I had one of those little autograph books. I would love to have had it. But I'm telling you, that is so critical to the growth of our sport. Yeah, I love it when I can get a show done at 9:30, and I get down out of the tower because I come down out of the tower and then I go help pick up some sponsorship stuff and then I come back to the command center and when I come back if it's just a sea of people in between trailers you know down through the, the pit area it's like thank you that's you know that's cool to see you know as, as long as we get done early and whatnot and we don't have the long drive there's no reason we can't spend a half hour 45 minutes with those people and, and sign some autographs and you know sign babies shake out of whatever you want to do yep. but just that that interaction with them it creates a fan for quite a while and it, it won't forget it. They might not go to a race again until they're old enough to do it on their own, but it, it, they're not going to forget about it. If, as long as it's a big enough interaction. Yep. My first kitty ride was in a big old 57 Chevy late model. The driver was Wally Locke. Wally had a couple of wins in the late model class at five mile point speedway. And I remember climbing in that car the first time as a little kid when they set me down in there. I remember the mud on the floor because it was hot. I was after they packed the track. And I remember the rumble of that car. I'm telling you, when you impact a kid at that moment of life, you get them hooked for life. So kudos. I, I just I just think that's so critical and so important. And they may sell a t-shirt or two along the way too. And I think that's important as well. Exactly. I mean, you're just trying to do anything to promote them and uh, with uh, Dirt Vision doing their stuff now and, and the, the photo shoot they had for the drivers to start the year that they use all year long on Dirt Vision and the video board. I mean, that's doing nothing but selling you and your sponsors. You know, the, that stuff's pretty neat. And, you know, I don't know if there's another Dirt Series that has that type of intro, you know, in, in a circle type world. I'm, I think Mo uh, Supercross obviously does, but they that's what they do. So selling the drivers, quick, efficient show, get the fans home so they can either go to the pits or they can go to the local bar or they can get home and put their kids to bed, whatever, just give them the choice. So that way, next time they go, oh, we'll go there. We get out early. So, yeah, I, I, I try to run a, a pretty quick show. And uh, sometimes I butt heads with other employees of ours that try to drag their feet. I'm like, no, we're going. And uh it's worked out so far. Uh, like I said, uh, it'll be seven years this September, uh, so they haven't fired me yet. Well, I'm 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 a fan of the short shows. I really truly am. How has you talked about Dirt Vision and the video board? Has has how, has that impacted what you do at all, or if so, how? You know, at first I was probably judgmental about it and not happy. Yeah. With the time it's going to take, but we've worked it in now to where the time it takes or what we do with that, you don't even notice it. And it works in the program pretty good and and is a visual for the fans that you don't see everywhere. So yeah, at first I wasn't, I wasn't on board, but after I saw it and what they're doing with it, it's a, it's a great addition to our shows and dirt vision. Um, I, I help them out all I can with, you know, if I know I'm going to be two car qualifying, I let them know as soon as I can because they've got, you know, different graphics and setups to do. Um, if I know time-wise that I'm going to be late on something, I let them know right away because I know they're going to have to fill. But other than that, they're pretty good about working around 
me and you know when i'm going they know they know our show now too so they know when they can do commercials they know when they can do whatnot and when there's going to be downtime so i think it's a we work well hand in hand of making it to so if you're doing the same thing every time make it so they can they can sell their product without having to slow our product down yeah, I um I sat in the stands at Houston's last year, and the 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 preseason interviews that they did, where they're talking drivers, talk about your first car, your first date, or your first kiss, or whatever. I mean, they do all of that fun stuff. And I sat there, and I'm just like, wait a minute, I got to write this down to ask him the next time that guy's on Wing Nation. You know, I mean, I just to me that is a connection. You know, I'm a Ford Bronco fan. The guy says, and there's Ford Bronco fans in that stands that say. I don't know Carson Macedo or whoever the Ford Bronco fan is. I think that connection is so cool. And the I think Dirt Vision has done well away from the track, but that video board at the track to me is a game changer. I just, as a, I, I go to the pits, I walk around, I talk to people, and I spend most of the race program in the stands because we don't need one more person down there in the pits dodging sprint cars or sprint cars dodging one more person, you know? I mean, during the running of the events. And I, I sit in the stands and I just find it to be great. It's just, it's just awesome. They just, it's really evolved well. And then the marketing it does outside of it, my gosh, the, the, the attendance speaks for itself on that. It's unreal. What, what's going on over there? Like I said, at, at first I wasn't on board. And after I saw what they're doing with them, I, I quickly changed my tune and said, we need to incorporate this more, but not show our slowdown or slow our showdown any. Right. And they've done great with that. I mean, they, when we need fill time, like you said, they've got those rapid fire questions or they've got this or they've got that. And while I see the same thing every time, those fans at that track don't. Right. So it's pretty neat anywhere you go and, and what they've done with that. So, yeah, it's, it's a huge and huge improvement to our program. And I think there's more room for improvement, um, just a lot more things you can put on there that you, you can say over the PA, but it doesn't hit the same. So, yeah, we're a visual society now. We've got to have a video screen in front of us. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's just, just the way, it's the way we communicate now. Mike, one of the things that I respect so much about you is your, your ability on social media to engage at certain times and maybe even more so to not engage at certain times. Um, how difficult is that? I mean, how many times do you have a, how many times do you have a tweet set up and you hit delete? How how difficult is that to 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 manage that as a as a leader in the sport to manage that? Oh, if I had a nickel for every time I had a tweet and deleted it, I'd be in a Prevo right now instead of my Fleetwood. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, I I always just try to be upfront with everybody. Um, I think if you you. If you do something and you don't explain why or you don't try to give your side, then you're just telling people that was a shady call on your part or a shady move. And if if I make a call and somebody disagrees and they want to, you know, they want a reasoning, if they want to, they want to talk about it, if they just want to argue and put down. I don't, I don't respond to that. But if if they want to, hey, why'd you do this? I'll explain my position and they can agree or disagree. It, it either order me, but I'm not. I won't hide why I made the call. Um, you know, there, I just think it's easier to be upfront with everybody, including racers and fans. So, I mean, some fans won't get it no matter what you tell them. Uh, other fans are pretty intelligent and go, oh, I didn't know that. So um, I just try to give information that I can that I think should be out. And if they disagree, I, I say, oh, okay, have a nice day. And 
You know, I just, like I said, I try to be upfront with everybody. Just one of my first interactions with you, other than hi, how are you doing at the racetrack? Uh, was right after COVID. Uh, we had had a promoter of a track that was going to be one of the first tracks back. And we had all of the uncertainty of protocols and government agencies. And there was a lot of concern. And it was a, it was a risk this track was taken. We had the person on. And you had sent me a, a direct message on Twitter. And we had just such a good back and forth. Just, uh, you know, we had the guy on. You were like, Here, here's what we need to be sensitive of with this, with protocols and trying to get states on board. And, you know, we've got to walk this through the proper channel. And, dude, I'm telling you, you what you're saying about handling it respectfully, um, that was, I, I, I was just, as a, as a guy that was, uh, I, I don't know if it was criticism, it was pointing out, you know, just, just so you're aware you know, we're trying to do this and we're trying to work with these states and someone coming in and having 8,000 people at a 4,000 seat facility may or may not help us. Um, I respect that a lot. And that's, that, 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 that's, a, that, that, that's a skill. So I just, I, I just want to mention that, that I really do respect it. And, and there's times when, uh, when, when we have fire suppression systems that somehow end up on, you know, uh, somehow end up talking about track safety. I'm, I haven't figured out how we jumped the bridge there to that. Uh, or a situation like Volusia, where you knew as much as everyone else knew that the racetrack wasn't what you guys wanted. I just think it's uh, it's got to be a challenging spot because your passion is there, and it's got to just be a really challenging spot. And I respect the way you handle it. It's really, really well done. Yeah, when we come out of COVID, I mean, everybody had the same goal. We wanted to get back racing yeah. as much as we can. Obviously, we do. That's how we get paid. Mm -hmm. So, but, you know, listening to the insight I get from, you know, our events team and the people that are, dealing with governments and whatnot as like I, I just at that time I felt like they you know you might not be doing us a service yet so uh, it it ended up being okay which it will all be okay but uh yeah I just try to give insight and uh Volusia I just happened to stay there all winter so I'm we don't have a house we have our RV so we stay in Volusia because we can hook up for free because World Racing Group owns it so I do a lot of work well, not a lot this year, but I do some work around there in the winter. Like um, last two winters, I've put up three new cables through one and two in the front stretch. I've welded the tabs on, you know, and ran the cable. I did all that work. You know, little things around there I can do in the winter just to stay busy. So, and then I watched that dirt come on and I watched the trucks have to be pointed uphill to get it to come out. It was so wet. And knowing when it got done getting put on and I just had to tell everybody, hey, patience, it, it'll get there. Just it's got to dry a little. So, yeah, I, I do a little bit of everything. <laughs> wow. That, man, that's, so So you and Ashley, you live in a motor coach. You travel around the country, you just live in a motor coach. Yeah, we had a house for a while, and it just didn't make sense. We're, <laughs> we get done at the end of November, or beginning of November, and we're back out again into January. So it just didn't make sense to be paying rent full year on something. So uh, we got the RV, and it'll be paid off next year. And then after that, we'll see what we're going to do and go from there. But we stay in the RV year round and uh, California, we don't take it to California. We're going to fly out tomorrow to Texas and uh, rental car it back to Texas again. So a month and stay in some Airbnbs and hotels just because the miles are, are hard to put on it and then uh, whatnot. So, but yeah, we go down to Volusia right after world finals and, uh, we just left there Saturday. Saturday 
Ashley had to remind me it's a whole three days ago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we just left Volusia Saturday. Our RV hadn't moved since November 8th. Whatever. Wow. That's cool. That is really neat. Do you and Ashley have, when you do get a chance, when you're, when you're not working at Volusia, are there things on the road that you enjoy doing as a, as a couple or as you as an individual? As, are there things you like to do when you get out and about? Well, she enjoys the beach. So every November we go to Dominican for seven to nine days. And then uh, we like different things around the country that we've seen and enjoy seeing and probably wouldn't have seen without this job, truthfully. Um, you know, we got to see almost every part of the country uh, traveling. So, yeah, uh, we base our, our movement off of food. Who has the best places to eat? That's probably the direction we're pointed uh, most of the time. So, yeah, that's, that's how we judge it. Is there a food spot? Is there a food spot that uh, is, is there one that stands out? I, I travel. I'm the same way. I travel. I love my job with NASCAR when I go sprint car racing and there's a lot of food along the way. Is there a, is there a favorite spot out on the tour? Ooh, I'd have to relay. I'd have to, Ashley, what's your favorite food spot out on the tour? We're pretty partial to Daytona beach area. Yeah. Honestly, I mean, you can you can go get if you want fresh fish, you can go get it. If you want a good burger, you can go get it. You want a good steak, you can go get it. Um, we enjoy Daytona Beach. We enjoy Gettysburg. Uh, Gettysburg, the town, has a couple good little dive bars and stuff in there that we really like. So we always stay right close to Gettysburg when we're out there. Um, yeah, that that's two of our favorites for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a Daytona Beach. I'm a fish sandwich guy. So whether it's, uh, I, I like the scene out on Krabby Joe's out on the pier, um, but the fish Reuben at Boondocks is one of my favorites. It's uh, the fish Reuben at Boondocks. Man, I, I, I don't go to Florida without stopping there and having that in the ice cold yingling beer. It's really good there. So <laughs> that's cool. That is, that is really sweet. That is, that is fun. That's for sure. I've got a couple of just kind of random things that I, that I want to finish up with here with you. Um, you're from Illinois and I, and, and, and just tragically a couple of weeks ago, we lost Kevin Olson. Um, and you had tweeted about Kevin and that uh, relationship with it. Dude, that, 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 that's devastating losing Kevin because he's one of the true rich character racers our sport has had. You know, it, you knew Kevin. It's amazing he lived to now. I yeah. mean, I I know there's a couple different times between race car wrecks and interstate wrecks that I you know his 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 nine lives were up. Um, you know, but man, my dad grew up with him in Rockford, ran around with him, you know, as a young kid. So that's how I, I mean I knew him literally my whole life. So to get that news, it was like oh you know. But I still smile because he didn't leave nothing on the table. Um, like I said, he had nine lives, and he, he used most of them. You know, the, most people don't know. He, they stopped to help a broken-down car on the side of the road on the interstate on a racing trip once, in underneath the hood, looking at the engine, and a semi hit him, put him into the engine compartment, and shot him, you know, 100 yards down the medium wow. at the interstate. And, he, you know, it broke vertebrae and everything in that wreck, but he lived. So he, he did multiple things like that, that you just like, yeah. he had nine lives. My he favorite. enjoyed every one of them. Yes, he did. 
Yeah, he did. Uh, I'm the same way. I was sad, and, and that sadness was followed by smiles and chuckles and laughs. Um, uh, my annual thing, I'd go to Chili Bowl, and uh, we would we would always barter over his shirt. You know, I mean, he had, of course, he had something, you know, he had something going on. This year, the shirt, usually they're asbestos-lined. Um, this year, it's asbestos-lined, COVID-proof, and every shirt was touched by Kyle Larson. Uh, that was his that was his pitch this year. And, and then it was one for 22 for 45, you know, I mean, it was the, 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 the scale was sliding in the wrong direction. And it was strange this year because I walk in and normally it was a three or four day process where I would barter with them and come back. And, and, and then there was sometimes when I was there, I'd walk out and be like, oh crap, I forgot to get my Kevin Olson shirt. For some reason this year, the very first day, I literally walked down to the ATM right around the corner from where he's at and bought the shirt, he signed it and everything. And uh, I'm laughing every time we'd walk by. He says, you want that second shirt for 25 bucks? And, you know, just those moments that only Kevin can do, you know. I mean, he's just that guy. Um, he's just that guy. And so I, you know, we came on Wing Nation the Tuesday afterward, and I brought the shirt in, you know. And I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm sad, but I'm laughing, and I'm sad, and I'm laughing. And so I'm showing the shirt to Aaron. I'm like, look at that. He signed it here. Look at that. And on the bottom of it, it says the Farewell, Farewell Tour. And then it was like, oh, wait, this is the Farewell, Farewell Tour. Um, just just what, a, what a rich part of our sport. I mean, what a fascinating part of our sport. So um, uh, be between their, him and Stan Fox's, yeah, some of the stuff they can get into, you know, between his light bulb repair business and then they got bowling involved. They got the bowling, uh, American Bowling Congress involved for a couple of years on their race cars. Uh, pretty big. They sponsored Stan at Indy. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's you're just always waiting for, well, what are you doing now? You know, just kept things light, you know, light. But, man, he was a fierce racer in his day. He could, he'd get a midget around the racetrack with the best of anybody. Speaking of getting a midget around the racetrack, uh, every year you do still climb in. Why the 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 Chili Bowl? Why is it important? What's what? Why is that important for you to go race the Chili Bowl every year? Well, it's when I have time off, so I can actually go race. Um, right. You know, I still feel like I can get a race car around the track. I just don't do it enough. Uh, you know, and a couple of years ago, I had a good run going, and the car died on me. My prelim night running third, and that gave me the itch again for a while. But it's getting close to where I don't know if I'll go. Uh, I, I say it every year, and then about two months before, I'm scrambling to find something to drive because I just got to go. So uh, I don't know. This year was, I think, 25 years or 26 years I've raced in it. Wow. So I don't know if I'll – I don't know if I'll shoot for 30 or – I don't know. I just have to see how I feel. I don't want to be – I don't want to be out in the way. I still want to feel like I have a chance at least mm -hmm. to do well and – and have a shot to put it in the preliminary or put it in the A on Saturday. Uh, chances of winning it, I'm probably not there. Chances of putting it in the show, I still think I can do that uh, with the right circumstances and the right car. And I, I have to treat my body better if I'm going to do that, though. Yeah. Yeah. Those restaurants on the road are probably not helping with it. So, <laughs> you know, you don't eat good on the road, but it's nice being in the RV. We could eat good, but we like going out to the places that it's not good for you. So, uh, yeah, um, yeah, I don't, Chili Bowl, like I said, I've, I've been to everyone since 93, and I've raced in everyone since, I think, 97, except for one. I missed one, and that gave Johnny Murdoch the most consecutive, which really pissed me off, because I didn't have a ride for one year, or I'd, I'd be at 25 or 26 consecutive. 
yeah. right now. And but is is I wish, is what it, yeah, yeah is I, what it is. I wish I had better runs in the A, but uh, I made the A I think three times and ran twenty first to seventh one year. That's the best I've done, and I probably had more. I probably was a top five car, and uh, just got stuck behind Shane Cottle on the bottom, and I moved him once, and a yellow come out, and I said I'm not going to move him again. It's just yeah. the way I race. I'll, I'll either get the hole or he'll leave me a hole or he won't. So. We were wrapping up our Wing Nation show, and I said to Aaron Evernham, I'm talking to Mike Hess. Speaking of moving people at the Chili Bowl, she claims she claims that you had a dust-up with her. Um, I mean, she's, she'll have the platform to dispute this next time on Wing Nation, but uh, what, what, what happened between you and my co-host? I don't I, – I think she was – turning around already i think i just helped her out a little i man that was so long ago i i can remember the instance and i she got turned and i think i just finished it off because i couldn't get stopped you know in the heat race it was that was before qualifiers and uh, i think i finished her off and whatnot but yeah we talked about it i think last year she's, i said yeah i remember it wasn't yeah. on purpose yeah she said she said she said that's funny Yep. She said you had talked about it. Final question. One of the overriding themes we have on Wing Nation is the state of 410 sprint car racing. Um, Pennsylvania, and, and actually Lucas Wolf announced this week a new ownership to it. Freddie Raymer's got a new ownership group. Ohio is so strong. California just looks like it's loaded with talent. And now, you know, with Peter Murphy doing what he's doing, what they're doing up at Skagit with the group up there. Um, what's your, just as a, as a, as a guy that's very involved in it, and I understand you're race director, you're not the, you're, you're, you're not the marketing guru or that sort of thing. What's your take on the state of 410 sprint car racing as, as we sit here right now across the country and then how it impacts you guys as you move across the country? Well, the state of, I mean, 410 racing has to be strong throughout the country for us to survive. Sure. Uh, we can't, you know, we can't carry our whole show by ourselves. You know, if we have, if we have 24 cars that we're carrying as platinum, we won't get any any support local because they perceive that as there's no spots to be had. Uh, you know, they don't want the competition's a little tough or whatever. So if we if if we carry to continue to carry, you know, 12 to 15 cars, I think that's healthy for us. Uh, and then car counts across the country seem to be not skyrocketing, but they're you know averaging a couple more, you know, maybe a car or more a year. And um, one of the telling things for me to, to, to know, like the marketing side of how, you know, how sprint car racing is reaching people is that Volusia this year uh, is the first year Daytona Speedway recognized our races and had people out and came out uh, during our races, you know, had their pace car, you know, included, the, they, they made it a point to be there, you know, to get in front of our crowds too. So. That tells me that, you know, the upper echelon's watching and realizing that we've got a, a pretty good train going right now and it's it's got some steam, but I think you can't rest on it in today's uh, uh, society and economy because uh, it could be, it could turn just as quick. Uh, this trip to California for all these cars are going to be, you know, putting fuel in, they're, they're going to spend a thousand more dollars this year on you know, extra on top of what they normally spend to get to California and back compared to last year. So um, anything they buy is more expensive. So I think it's it's rolling. I, I Hopefully it stays 
plateaued long enough to to get to the next you know to get to some easier times yeah, but uh you know you know i just we, we when we get to that uphill we gotta make sure we can get up there but yeah, yeah, yeah I agree daytona, with you. daytona being involved with lucia is like yeah, i like wow that's interesting you know normally you know they don't don't care what we're doing out there you know so i i thought that was interesting I think there's so much going on in the racing world. And, and as a guy that spends more time in the NASCAR side than the sprint car side, but has the dual passion for it. Um, and I, I think it's, I think we see it in the sprint car side. Obviously, Kyle Larson is the flag bearer of it, but, but Christopher Bell and Ricky Stenhouse Jr. and Alex Bowman and guys like that. But, but even on the, on the NASCAR side of it, Josh Wise is a late model stock racer from here in the Carolinas. Now he's in the Xfinity Series program with Junior Motorsports. Kyle Busch, good Lord, knows where he's at. From its super late models to running micros. Now he's running a micro out at out at uh, Peter Murphy's place. Um, I, I think it's. I think it. I think that's just. I think that is kind of forced. Maybe not forced, but it's opened the eyes of some folks within the NASCAR that this is a viable form of the sport. And where we all work together, if the water level gets higher for the World of Outlaws and the water level gets higher for the NASCAR Tour, then we all can get get our buckets full with it. So. Uh, I sense that more than I probably ever have, and that, that's neat. I was—I actually was not aware that Daytona had a presence out there at Volusia. I'm glad to hear that. That's pretty cool stuff. Yeah, when people want to put down NASCAR and such, I—I I just usually keep my mouth shut because, you know, if if they're failing and not doing good, it's not gonna—it's it, not gonna help any of us. I mean, it—they—they've it, got to have a presence, and it, it helps all of racing all the way down to the local Hornet guy, whether he thinks it or not. But if if they're up and and you know their numbers are up and whatnot that's going to trickle down and we'll see it too and it, it's already showed that way our crowds at volusia this year were uh, some of the best for the, our sprint car nights that we've ever had and then the late model nights were actually down some racing against daytona which we've always done but yeah. i think i think you know that that swing of that number that swing was from people that went to the big track instead of to the to the dirt track this year because they wanted to see the new car they wanted to see you know something like that so i with nascar if nascar is thriving we'll thrive and if we thrive and nascar is hurting we should help anything we can do to help bolster them I, it's got to be done because that's it, it, i think i think it hurts us without them especially now with the the crossovers you know it's, it's i it's pretty neat when you go to race director race and you got well, we only had two. We were supposed to have three cup guys. We're going to be in the field at Volusia, but uh, Bell backed out for whatever reason. But it's still neat to say, geez, you know, when when does that happen or has happened? And it hasn't. Yeah. Not often the Cup Series track is uh, winning World of Outlaw races and running World of Outlaw races. So um, neat stuff. That is really neat. And, and those guys get treated no different than anybody else. And so <laughs> other than they get to talk, they get more interviews. That's about it. But uh, yeah. They get no special track time, no favors. We, they do, you know, they're all white cars. We just, they're coming to race. Which is why I think they keep coming back. I really do. Mike, um, I started this by saying um, I wanted to see if I could duplicate our visit, you know, just our chit chat up there at uh, PRI. And I, I've enjoyed the conversation. I, I love people that share a passion for the sport. 
uh, your journey to get to where you're at and your passion with what you do. As I mentioned, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the program, the, the race, the event that World of Outlaws do. And obviously, you got a big hand in that. Appreciate you joining me here in the, uh, in the post office this week. And we wish you the best as you guys uh, kick it off and get going west and on throughout the season. I'm sure we'll see you at the racetrack. But I appreciate you joining me here. What a great time. I love chatting with people who are passionate about sprint cars, whether they're series officials, mechanics, drivers, fans. There is something about this sport that's passionate, and Mike Hess certainly has that passion. So I appreciate him joining us here today on the Post Office, all part of Wing Nation's podcast series. I'm Steve Post. Thanks for joining us here this week on the show. Buying a house can feel like you're going 200 miles per hour in bumper-to-bumper traffic with a dirty windshield and the sun in your eyes. Ruoff Mortgage has the technology, expert staff, and resources to simplify the process while speeding up the time it takes to get clear to close. So while getting a loan can seem intimidating, Ruoff Mortgage will have you opening the door to your new home fast and stress-free. Visit Ruoff.com to learn more. That's Ruoff.com.